Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force podcast. My name is Captain Rishtar Byrne. In today's show, I'd like to welcome on Chief of Staff of the Irish Defence Forces, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy. Sir, you're very welcome on the show and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Richard. Thank you very much. So on today's show, we're going to take a look back at some of the big items from your first year in office, discuss some topics that are ongoing, and also take a look at what might come up in the next 12 months in office. So, sir, the majority of people listening will have a reasonably good knowledge of who you are and your career in the Defence Forces. But I might ask you, before we get into the main topics, to briefly talk us through your background, your career to date, for the listeners that might be aware. Uh, thanks, Richard. Um, delighted uh, to be here with you all. And um, this year, I've moved, just moved into my 39th year in service in the Defence mm-hmm. Forces. The majority of that career, as people probably know, I spent in the Air Corps. But for the last seven, eight years now and early, I have worked in various roles within Defence Headquarters, um, being it from starting in Strategic Planning Branch right through to the Deputy Chief of Staff role, and now as the Chief of Staff. I had a very rewarding and fulfilling career in, in aviation uh, in the Air Corps. I was focused primarily mm-hmm. on the search and rescue, mm-hmm. uh, which I did for nearly 15 years and uh, had many experiences in that. I can imagine. Uh, but ultimately, I suppose, joining in 1984, I had come from a family of a, of eight children uh, with my parents. My father was a teacher and my, my mother was a hairdresser. Uh, and I suppose that goes to the very heart of where I, my values mm-hmm. and uh, I suppose my overall sense of purpose and sense of being came from. I'm very fortunate now to be married to Caroline and I have three young children of my own and I recognize the value of parenting and probably those values that my parents passed to me and and, and how I try and live those and and pass them to my own children. Lauren is 20 and Ryan is 17 and uh, Lily May is the youngest, she's 14. And uh, Caroline works Mm -hmm. full time, Mm -hmm. Uh, I work full time. So we're very conscious of, I suppose, the stresses and strains with with a young family and Mm -hmm. they're not so young anymore, but they're Mm -hmm. still in that kind of busy period. And uh, so I suppose from that sense, I, I do understand the, the, the pressures and the stresses that everyday life brings to all of us uh, when we're now in this, I suppose, the new model, if you like, for the last two decades, whereby most people in the home work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and that's just the reality of life. And most people in the Defence Forces face that challenge today. And, and as you say that, sir, does, does, I wanted to ask you, because not long before you came into office, you launched your Chief of Staff booklet, uh, where you listed some of your priorities for your uh, your time as Chief of Staff. So some of these priorities included continuous professional development, blended learning, remote working, family-friendly appointments overseas, and security of tenure. So can you talk us through some of these priorities and uh, why they're important to yourself? Yeah, I, I, I identified three key areas. And, and in one sense, they're very simple. But uh, in another sense, I, I recognise how important... They are firstly to everybody serving the Defence Forces and then the second part then, I suppose, to the Defence Forces. And uh, one of those priorities was the Commission and I think that that speaks for itself and maybe we'll talk about that a little later mm-hmm. on. But the others were more orientated towards our, towards people, mm-hmm. people like me, people mm-hmm. like my wife, mm-hmm. people like yourself and others and every man and woman serving in the Defence Forces, their partners and their families. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, for a number of years now we have seen the Defence Forces um, make efforts and strides towards improving the, the way we do business in terms mm-hmm. of um, creating those that work-life balance. Uh, what struck me very much as Deputy Chief of Staff um, during the COVID period was 
you know, we were we accelerated an awful lot of our remote access. We accelerated the, the how we went about blended learning. You know, we had been making strides in this or trying to do this for many years. But during that period, we made exceptional kind of advances. And I, I, I wanted to make sure we didn't lose that momentum, uh, in particularly in, in blended learning. And uh, I, had, I had several conversations, but one day I was speaking to a group from the command and staff course. And it was very clear that a number of the individuals in that group would not have felt they had been capable of sustaining the effort on the Manor staff course during COVID or during any time, but for the blended learning, because it gave them the ability to mix the work-life balance piece in, in a manner that they could balance it in their lives. And that really struck a chord with me. I had a similar conversations during the potential officers course and during the um, all-arm standard course with other individuals. And it really, I suppose, drove it home to me that we really have to drive this piece forward and we've no excuses. And I and that's why I set it down as one of my priorities, if you like. And the third priority area was about communication because I'm nearly 40 years in service now. I'm in my 39th year. You know, we have we have generational gaps between my length of service and those that are just entering into service. And there is a an oceans between my understanding of good communication mm-hmm. and how that generation communicates. I felt very strongly about the fact that we need to do better at our internal communication because we need to inform and enhance people's knowledge about the Defence Forces, about the life they're living, about the values we have and about what is on offer to them more importantly and at the added value piece. And the only way we could do that is through good communication. And likewise, we have a, you know, we have a very important role in terms of external communication. I've taken a personal active role in that area, but I've encouraged others to do so also. Within the constraints, of course, of what is appropriate for the Defence Forces and it's done in an open and a transparent way. Mm-hmm. And that's important uh, that because the accuracy and the truthfulness of information is important. So I have a number of initiatives around internal communication that we're, we're, we're developing. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm very excited about the progress we've made on the internal app, for instance. Okay. And uh, we've put a lot of time and effort because we want to get this right. We've put huge investment into it. And uh, we will see this come to fruition over the next number of months. Okay. Uh, but I'm very excited about what I've seen so far from the team. And uh, I think it will bring us to the next level of internal communication and really change the dial, if you like, a little bit for us in the organisation. So that's an app our serving members can have on their phone? And This is where, I mean, I'm speaking to every new member now, if you like, mm-hmm. every and every serving member. Um, but the younger generation in particular, you know, that they're going to be able to, on their phone, see, hopefully in time, what their schedule is for the week. Mm-hmm what information is relevant and what they need to know at any particular point in time. Or if they want to find something out, they can go on the app and find it out. And we need to get into that space that they're happy in and are comfortable in. And uh, really, that's the purpose of the application, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But above all else, it's about getting the right information to people on time to keep them informed in a manner that they can understand as well, which is important. So similar to the North board you see in any unit, but it's now on your phone and it's... And you can yeah, but I, if, if Richard, you know, I think the days of notice boards are yeah. important, but the majority of people in a, in a unit don't see the notice mm-hmm. board. Or if they do, they walk past it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want people to have a hunger for information. We want people to be able to access the information when they feel like they need it, as opposed to having it, you know, pinned up in front of them or being reliant on them being in attendance when a talks to troops happen or something like that, which is not always the case, yeah, as no, you know. It's, it's fair and we have to remember the majority of our organisation do not have an access to a computer mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis 
because that's not the orientation of our our role. Mm-hmm. But I suppose everyone has a phone. Yeah. But everyone has a phone. So, sir, um, what I might move on to, I might, we might speak about uh, operations and uh, operation over the past 12 months. And in fairness, it's been a busy 12 months since mm-hmm. you've taken up office with the operation in Kambol, providing support to the Dublin Airport Authority, uh, provision accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. Um, but again, the, the Commission Defence uh, report identified a need to assess our ATCP or our aid to the civil power taskings, such as maybe our security presence in Port Leash or Central Bank. Is this something that the General Staff are looking at or looking to reassess uh, as recommended by the, the Commission? It is, absolutely. Uh, I think you're right, um, Richard. You know, the Commission has called it out very much. But in fairness, uh, as part of our engagements with the Commission itself, we, we highlighted mm-hmm. these areas. Um, we have some legacy um, taskings that have been there f- since the 70s. Um, they continue to this day. And we have to challenge ourselves to see, one, if they're still relevant, and two, if they're adding value. Mm-hmm. And three, are they extending the organisation beyond where it needs to be at this point in time? So from that context, yes, we are looking at them. We're looking at them very actively, in fact, and and we're providing the advice accordingly with uh, our colleagues in the Department of Defence. And I think, um, you know, if we're given a task, it's up to the military professional advice and professional approach to decide what is appropriate resources to put to that task. Mm -hmm. And we do that and we have done that. And we are... Con- we're continuously, at this point in time, reviewing each of those uh, particular operations. I-, I think everybody will know that one of the most common ones that are known is Portlaoise Prison, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. Another would be Enfield well, Explosives Depot. And, of course, we have a, a guard in the central bank all mm-hmm. of the time. And there are others. And we have to look at those in terms of the time and context under which we were asked to do those tasks and mm-hmm. ask ourselves now, is it still appropriate that we continue it at the same level or if we continue it at all? And we have made several advances in each of those areas mm-hmm. to this point, and we will see, I think, progress around that area. Because in an organisation where we've been asked to do many and multiple additional tasks in mm-hmm. the interim, we have to see what we should prioritise uh, and make sure that you know we take the strain and the stress off the organisation and get back to some fundamental training and development of the key core um, military skills, if you like, that perhaps can sometimes suffer as a consequence of our commitments elsewhere. And just as you say that, obviously the Defence Forces are well used to and have no problem putting our shoulder to the wheel in times of crisis. For example, over the summer, assisting the Dublin Airport Authority, as I mentioned. But that said, are we becoming the first port to call for the government or for agencies in an emergency? And is that sustainable? I think it's fair to say that we're probably not the first port to call. Um, I think it probably... um, you know, there are people that are out there calling for the defence mm-hmm. forces to be involved, sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's up to um, the Department of Defence and ourselves uh, and, and the, the various departments that are, that are involved to, to make an assessment of whether or not they need the support of the defence mm-hmm. forces in the first instance. And we have to look at that in terms of what resources we have mm-hmm. and whether it's appropriate or not for us to get involved. I think it's fair to say that the defence forces are, if you like, the backstop okay. and the last line of defence for the state. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we and when extremist conditions prevail, mm-hmm. when things are really bad, then the defence forces should be uh, have, have the capacity and should be enabled to step up to the mark. We saw that during COVID, and I think we're very proud, all of us, of what the defence forces delivered. Uh, with our colleagues in the Department of Defence during the mm-hmm. COVID period. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw perhaps 
areas to, of the defence forces coming to the fore that may not have been in the limelight pre- heretofore, you know, before that, for example, the, the, the medical corps oh, yeah. and how they stood up in terms of the vaccination, how they stood up in terms of supporting nursing homes, you mm-hmm. know, and, and other areas that were, you know, that were in difficulty at particular points in time during that period. And that was very, very important. Um, the Dublin Airport Authority is, is, is a different model, if you like. Mm-hmm. It was a different request. Yes. And, uh, but ultimately, when the government make a decision or make a request of the of the the defence forces, uh, of course we're going to support the government, and of course we're going to um, do that within the means and capabilities that we have. And I think I'm satisfied that um, you know the advice that we put forward at any particular point in time, that advice is listened to, uh, mm-hmm. in particularly by our minister and by our department. And together, uh, we generally come to a, a point of truth in terms of what is appropriate or what is inappropriate for the Defence Forces to get involved in. And that's important that, you know, when decisions are made mm-hmm. and when um, the Defence Forces move forward, that we move forward together in unity. But be assured that the general staff do take a, a full 360 view mm-hmm. of everything that we're asked to do before they provide their advice. And along with our colleagues, we've, we, gen- we generally will find uh, a point that is appropriate uh, and, um, you know, that's been my experience to date. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that will continue because we have a very strong working relationship uh, with our colleagues in the department. And just if we stick at operations uh, on islands or, or even in, in our own territorial waters, there's been a considerable amount of media coverage regarding our ability to monitor and protect our subsea infrastructure and pipelines recently. Um, we've seen articles citing that Ireland is the weakest link in European defence. What would you be thoughts on that label or what would you be reply to that? You know, I, I think um, the security environment has changed so significantly, um, not only in the last number of years, but in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the war on, on Europe, uh, in terms of on the landmass of Europe, uh, perpetrated by Russia on Ukraine, has shifted the model indefinitely. We're seeing um, mass migration as a consequence. Mm-hmm. We're seeing threats and we're seeing security issues and risks that we wouldn't have thought possible uh, prior to that war uh, and perhaps our focus was elsewhere at any given time. You mentioned critical infrastructure of the state, the security implications of that particular uh, war, the uh, energy security, mm-hmm. food security, all of the, 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 the vocabulary that has evolved into the common conversations not only in, in the defence forces and amongst mm-hmm. our people, but right across society here in Ireland has changed so dramatically in the last 12 months. And we're having a mature conversation around these areas. Mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to this weakest link suggestion mm-hmm. because it, that is to suggest that we have nothing of value to mm-hmm. add. You know, Europe, if anything has come out of this in terms of positivity, is the unity within Europe in its response throughout this last 12 months in particular shows that Ireland has value to add and will continue to add. I'm very conscious of our position in terms of our capabilities, our resources and our capacity to respond. I'm conscious where we stand today as a defence forces, but I'm not looking in my rearview mirror mm-hmm. at what we had or what we don't didn't have. I'm looking at the horizon and what we've been asked to do the level of ambition that the government has set for us and the pathway we have to get there. And I'm ambitious that we achieve that. And that's within the means and the resources that we've been provided with. And until that changes, 
that's my priority and that's my focus. And, and sticking with the operations side of it, sorry, you mentioned resources there. In the Commission of Defence report, it was uh, it was identified that there was a considerable amount of the Defence Forces serving overseas uh, on a yearly basis, and it was considered um, quite an exceptional figure by international standards. So is our current levels of commitment, are they sustainable? Um, and are we looking to reassess that uh, to relieve any pressure on looking into the future? Yes, we are looking at our overseas okay. commitments. We're looking at them very critically. But we're looking at them in the sense of the totality of our commitments. Because I recognise the strain that the organisation is under. And I also, as I said, I'm looking at the horizon and over it. And when we look at that collective security and defence piece, uh, and we look at our commitments uh, that we have made and that we're going to make, mm-hmm. we have to allocate the resources that we have in, in a manner and means that we can meet those commitments. So we have currently um, two major commitments overseas in terms of UNDOF and UNIFIL. We have a number of smaller commitments, which we have begun already to rationalise on by critically examining the added value piece and, and so on, and we've done that. And we are looking very clearly now at the overseas in terms of our two major deployments okay. overseas to see how we're going to meet our future commitments uh, and how compatible that is with two major UN-focused overseas commitments. And we're advising uh, the Minister on this issue at this time. We've, we've come to certain conclusions and advice. And um, it's, clearly, it's clear that we do need to rationalise in certain okay. areas. But there's no decisions being made around this space okay. just yet. But I would expect that we would have some decisions in the very near future in order that we can advance our, uh, our programmes in terms of what the projections are for uh, at the horizon. And uh, the horizon, when I talk about the horizon, I'm talking about three years' time. Okay, so we're likely to see some, some changes in our, in our, in our bigger Yeah, we, we, we will see definitely okay. some changes in our disposition in overseas uh, okay. in the near future. So, sir, I might bring you on now to the Commission of Defence and, and its report. We've, we've mentioned it a few times, um, but obviously there's been an increase in our budget this year of 67 million, uh, and it's all part of uh, the level of ambition too that was accepted by government. Um, but do you feel that, is it enough at this time, uh, this increase in budget, and what will this money be spent on in, in the coming 12 months? It, it's amazing how people always focus on the money, and you're yeah. right, you're <laughs> right, Richard, and, uh, it, because it is important, and it was one of the key, I suppose, if you like, red lines that, you know, this, this report would have been, um, really would have fallen on deaf ears, if you like, without the resources put behind it. And I'm very grateful that the Minister and the government have come in so strongly behind the Commission's report in the first instance and uh, through the memo for government, which was accepted in July. And then we have received the uh, budgetary increase back in September. Mm. Um, 67 million, from my point of view, is enough this year mm. uh, because uh, that coupled with the building momentum pay increases, uh, in fact, the totality of the allocation will, will be over 100, 100 million. And that's important because um, why do I think it's enough? We'll be in the first year of transition to the transformation piece. We have to build the capacity to absorb it. Uh, and we're not going to be able to deliver new equipment and new capability in 12-month period. That's just, it's just not a, it, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and no military would be able to do that because you have supply chain issues and uh, to overcome and so on, contractual and tender training issues and, so and training yeah. and so on and so forth. So um, it's very important that we had the step change in terms of the budget. Uh, we have a clear signal from government that they're putting the resources behind their decision in, uh, of, of government in July. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as important a step as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, this amount of money will help us uh, deliver and commence building the foundations around the commission. Because I think it's important. I don't think it's important. I know it's important 
that we get to a point where we start building very solid foundations mm-hmm. around transformation. Mm-hmm. And part of those foundations are, of course, you have to have some early wins. Uh, and early wins, uh, if I can list them, I don't mind it, but if, such as the MSA, for yeah, instance, yeah. Uh, which was very important. If something, again, we flagged during our submission, and I know, for instance, representative associations would have, would have flagged it. And I think everybody understood uh, around military service allowance and the need uh, to have uh, an equality. And mm-hmm. I, I speak about the equality of allowances to people. And that's for and, our, more, our most junior ranks. Yeah, and this yeah. is for the most junior mm-hmm. and the most vulnerable, if you like, mm-hmm. in our organisation. It's for those within the first three years of service whereby they were on a lesser military service loans than their colleagues. Okay. And we've seen that in other institutions across society. Mm-hmm. And it, there is always uh, an imbalance in inequality associated with that. Now, that has been removed and they've been brought up to the full military service allowance from the beginning of their service. Likewise, they were asked to stand still in terms of their pay for three years uh, and not have any graduated pay. Uh, And that was wrong. Mm -hmm. That has been removed. Mm -hmm. And that's two hugely beneficial pieces for our most junior, Mm -hmm. our most vulnerable and our newest members. And I thought that, that was very, very important. Uh, in, in the Naval Service, we have, uh, the commission recommended that uh, the amount of allowances they had in terms of patrol duty and so on, that mm-hmm. that needed to be amalgamated. And we're looking at that and we've made considerable progress in that area and our colleagues in the Department of Defence have done tremendous work around this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would be hopeful that we can resolve that very, very quickly also. Those early wins are important because they show to everybody that this is different, mm-hmm. that we can accelerate change here and we're getting to it. And we have several areas that we're bringing about early wins and early actions in the whole of the transformation. But the 67 million will help us pay for those initial mm-hmm. actions. Uh, it will help us to resource uh, the enablers, as I call them, as we call them, in the, mm-hmm. but what it means, the help we need, if you okay. like to get to transformation. Enablers are just the help, but facilitate change. And we will need an example of that would be we have a a group in from an external consultancy in to help us deliver the implementation plan. Mm -hmm. So the implementation plan is going to lay out exactly what we do for the next 12 months, what is proposed we do for the following 12 months and the following 12 months and the following 12 months until we deliver Mm -hmm. on the commission. But it'll be very detailed within the first 12 months. And while we have a good idea of how to do that, we needed help in terms of how to actually plan it and deliver it and to, sh- to show it on a plan. Mm-hmm. And we could have done it in time, mm-hmm. but not in the window that we wanted to do it in because we have to accelerate and we want this delivered by the end of January and to get that time frame and to get it delivered by January, we needed help. Okay. And I'm not afraid to say that, mm-hmm. but this is where the resources are put in to build the right foundations because it'll be important that we get the implementation plan right Mm -hmm. because we have to show that we can achieve and we don't overreach but at the same time we have to be ambitious. So the military service allowance, the requirement for three-star privates to mark time and the the seagoing allowances, they're they're your early wins but the rest is going into the foundations to build for the rest. It is but of course we'll have some early equipment as well and uh, you know the overall budget has to increase around that and we have some you know only in the last number of weeks, we have a re- had a revision on our, our infrastructural development plan. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that again later, but we have a huge step change in what we're proposing to do in our infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, what we're proposing to do in our equipment, and what we're po- proposing to do with our people. Mm-hmm. And all of that takes money. And we're just trying to 
incrementally grow it so we have the capacity to do it uh, but also the ability to absorb the extra money because okay. you can't just throw money at something yeah, and hope yeah, it, yeah. it gets right mm-hmm. you have to build yeah. capacity to do that that's why we've looked and prioritized for instance the capability development mm-hmm. uh, cell and that's by putting a really strong cell together that looks at what capability we need if you like downstream midstream and upstream what we need, how we're going to get it, and how we operationalize it, and then ultimately bring it through its service life. All of this planning has to be done at this early stage. This is the foundations you have to build. And that's why we've accelerated, for instance, the capability development planning cell. And you, and you mentioned kit and equipment there, sir. Is there any plans over the next short to medium period that equipment we'll be getting in? Well, some of the equipment is, is well advertised, I think. Mm-hmm. we, As you know, we have an initiative to acquire two new inshore patrol vessels. Mm-hmm. They're very important in terms of, I suppose, initial response to the, um, to the changing security environment mm-hmm. on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And the first step in achieving a balanced fleet, which was identified in the Commission itself, mm-hmm. and they will be delivered within the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. They'll be fully delivered and we'll be a long way towards operationalising them. We have the MRV, mm-hmm. which is another vessel, the that multi-role, we, vessel, the yeah. multi-role vessel, which would achieve further balance to the fleet that we have at our disposal. But not only that, the IPVs and the MRV will give us the flexibility to achieve a, a greater disposition of the naval service. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it is, it, 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 we, we have an ambition to put an East Coast base okay. for the naval service, which the IPVs will operate from. Mm-hmm. And then we look further as the Commission, maybe perhaps to have something on the West Coast in time. And... Uh, that will bring us, I suppose, a greater access to the Navy. Uh, from the naval point of view and maritime operational point of view, it will get greater accessibility, but also from a, a, a government, uh, defence forces and a, the state's point of view and the people of the state, they will be able to visibly see the Navy mm-hmm. and therefore hopefully it will have a knock-on effect. I'm confident it will have a knock-on effect in terms of our recruitment and our retention of mm-hmm. naval service personnel uh, down the road. Uh, another area is, of course, we'll have the delivery next year of the um, new maritime patrol aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, which will bring a huge capability in terms of the air and maritime domain. Uh, it'll allow us to stay longer, go further mm-hmm. and see more uh, in our maritime and air domains. And that's hugely important in terms of the collective security uh, and our contribution to the overall value of security and defence in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we will increase uh, and accelerate our uh, acquisition of our uh, IMBAS, which is our individual moduli ballistic uh, armour systems. Okay. Um, and we're looking at projects then. We have already taken uh, considerable steps in acquiring um, the information and shaping the environment around what our radar would look like. Okay. And one of the first areas we're looking at, and that is the primary radar. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I want to look at radar, though, in the totality of it. Okay. Uh, not just in isolation, we're looking at primary radar. We're looking at radar in the context of primary radar, coastal radar, maritime mounted radar, so airborne bu- radar. building the foundation and for... Air defence radar. Mm-hmm. So the foundations we're building around radar is about understanding the totality of the, mm-hmm. the, the radar picture, uh, but we're prioritising the primary radar area. And I think if we get it right at the beginning, that'll make that transition so much easier. And in one sense, we're, we're fortunate we're starting from a blank sheet of paper. Okay. You know, and some of our research to date, others weren't as fortunate and other countries have done this, mm-hmm. you know, and they had bespoke radar systems that they had to try and make interoperable and more compatible with one another and that can be more expensive in the long run 
but that's the approach and, and, and that's where we're, we're going. So, so sir, if I may, we might move on to a, another aspect of the Commission on Defence Forces and their report. And they identified issues surrounding organisational culture in the Defence Forces. And also very early in your tenure, the Women of Honour Group came forward with allegations of sexual abuse, harassment and discrimination in the Defence Forces. So again, can you talk to us maybe through what steps have been taken to address these issues and your own personal views on them? I can't restart. It's, um, you know, I, I think I've been very frank and honest with the organisation and with anybody that's asked me questions on the space. And I can assure you, uh, and I think everybody listening, that I'm totally committed that as long as I'm Chief of Staff, I'm very committed to ensuring that Ogling Heron is a work environment where we have a, a culture that is underpinned by the principles of dignity, uh, equality, mutual respect and a duty of care. You know, if everybody in the organisation strives to achieve that, I think we can get a long way down the road. I have to recognise that, you know, that we have issues in the organisation and they're not all historic. And the Commission, you know, itself it called out a number of cultural issues, not as starkly perhaps as the Women of Honour, and I'm grateful to the Women of Honour. And uh, they did come very early in my tenure, and you're quite right, but I saw that as not as a challenge, I saw that as an opportunity uh, and, and that's the way I've looked at it and the opportunity to do something about it. And I think the actions to date, not only of myself, but I have to say the Secretary General and her team, uh, we're completely committed to delivering a response uh, that addresses the whole cultural issues that have arisen, not only through the, co the Commission, but through the Women of Honour and subsequently. And we've taken a number of steps um, already in the last 12 months. And sometimes when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to get outside and realise that you have actually made advances. Okay. And because issues continues, continue to arise, and sometimes that can set you back, as it should. But um, we have taken measures around uh, our initial parts in terms of responsive teams that have gone out. We set up into independent confidential contact persons. We set up a organisational standing committee, cultural standing committee, which I brought in after all of, of the various actions, initial actions that we did, trying to centralise all of those into a very diverse cross-rank, uh, cross-gender uh, grouping that could bring a holistic approach to how we would address this. And nobody had all the answers here, by the way, and I don't have all the answers, but I know we have to look for the answers and continuously to uh, continue to look for them. The two main efforts that have happened in the most recent past is we, we undertook a baseline survey. The results out of that were stark. Okay. But I, I'm satisfied, and, and I'm not surprised with that, uh, but I'm satisfied it gives us a baseline to work from, which is important, and an under, a, a greater understanding of the thinking and the actions and the behaviours in the organisation today. Okay. And secondly, then, it's on, base, on, on foot of that, we, you know, as well, we have been developing uh, our, our SER, which is the Sexual Ethics and Responsible Relationships Program. Uh, it's a program of workshops that we're going to roll out. We've already rolled out the pilot of that and we've taken the feedback and looking from the learning from that pilot to make it better. Uh, we learned a lot from foreign militaries and others that have implemented something similar. Okay. Uh, and others have taken a far greater length of time to introduce these workshops and this type of workshop. But... Um, you know, that coupled with a lot of the bystander training that we have done, I think we're making progress because to change the culture of the organisation, I recognise takes time. It's not a light switch that you can turn off and on. It's something that you have to continuously persevere with and you have to continuously 
um, follow through with and we will do that and we will continue to do so. And that course will be, those workshops will be um, rolled out from January uh, to the whole of the organisation okay. and we, we will continue to roll it out. And I think it's yourself, you've mentioned them, sorry, in previous uh, interviews that the, these workshops will be compulsory. Yes. Uh, can you maybe talk to me behind the decision making behind that and particularly our, our internal audience be probably interested in that? I, I made a very, if you like, unilateral decision, it would be compulsory and um and my thinking was very clear behind that, uh, very simple. Um, I, I, from my background in aviation and the whole need for safety and regulation and how you improve it, uh, and right across the defence forces. I mean, for example, health and safety, we, we make that compulsory in our organisation. Why? Because we recognise the need for safe practices uh, and, and for safe health mm-hmm, and, and to mitigate risks in, in the environment that you're operating in. I see this as no different in terms of our culture and behaviours. And if we're going to make it safer and we're going to make advances, then everybody has to participate in it. And some of the outcomes of the baseline survey reinforced my view that this is the necessity to make this compulsory. And I, you know, and, and, and while I made a unilateral decision, you know, all of the general staff feel strongly that this is uh, the appropriate um, pathway in terms of making compulsory training within the organisation. So we might actually move on then to recruitment and retention. And again, the Commission of Defence again calls it on additional military and civilian personnel to be recruited in, in level of ambition too. Uh, but with the numbers in somewhere in around 8,000 and it's said to be our lowest in 50 years, do you think this target is achievable and how are we going to achieve it? Yeah, it's um, 2,000 extra people. Uh, but when you look at the numbers, if you, as you have just um, qualified them, uh, which is accurate, uh, you know, we'll have over 3,000 extra people to recruit by 2030. Uh, do I think it's achievable? Yes, it has to be. And we are proactively looking at all avenues to try and see how we can achieve that. I think anybody that, 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 that has known me and, and, and has worked with me, that I am open to, um, very much open in terms of my mindset of how we would achieve uh, results and outcomes that would benefit the organisation. Uh, I've done that in my past service in the Air Corps. I've done it as DCOS support. And, uh, and we, I know we have to get better in terms of recruitment, but more importantly, in retaining our people. Okay. And retention is probably the single greatest challenge. Yeah. Uh, but the, the question you asked me is about the 3,000 we have to recruit. Mm-hmm. And can we achieve that? And I, say, and, and I believe, yes, we can. Um, but we have to be far more aggressive in how we do that. But we have to create the conditions in the organization to enable it. And one of those initiatives which we're working on currently is this training initiative out of Gormanston, which will have the Joint Training Institute, effectively, that we're going to put in place there. And that's where Navy, Army, Air Corps can... It's the Joint Facility, which ultimately will have all three services trained to two-star level in the one location. I suppose our vision for that, and my my personal vision for it, but is to to create the environment where we're almost creating a third-level campus. Okay. So that down the road, people not only look at a third level option in terms of university, they don't look at a third level option in terms of a technical qualification or apprenticeship. They don't look at perhaps going out into a career that is through the working environment, but they look at not joining the army. And I say that uh, in an anecdotal way, uh, but they look at perhaps going to the military campus to join the service of the state in terms of the defense forces. And we have to create that in the mindset. So we have to change uh, our approach. And to do that, we have to create a centre of excellence 
that meets that vision. Okay. And that's the goal for the joint training uh, initiative in Gormanston. Uh, we have built a pathway to that over a number of phases. We will move to the first phase very quickly over the next 12 months. And it will take some time to get to that level of ambition and that vision, I've no doubt. Mm-hmm. But we have set it down and we're determined to get there. And we have the support of the minister and the department in, in, in terms of the approach. When we get there, uh, we have set down, we've done the data on it. Uh, and I believe that therefore that those figures by 2030 are achievable if we can keep the momentum and drive that recruitment piece. And, and the induction centre or training centre, sir, is there, a, is there is in the next three or four or five years that you see it fully operational? The initial operational um, piece will be will be next year. Okay, next year. Um, we will have a hybrid for a couple of years okay. in terms of we'll have the traditional um, battalion-led uh, training, okay. but we'll have the joint induction training up and running at that point as well. Uh, but we'll have to create the conditions in terms of the facilities that we have in Gormanston, the upgrade of those, the uh, personnel and resources to deliver the training there, uh, and and the actual investment in that location itself. But uh, that will take time. So I would see full operational capabilities at this time point in time we're projecting to be about three years down the road. Okay. So, sir, I suppose we, we spoke about recruitment there and how to get people in the door. But once they're in, then we're, we're talking about the retention then. So how, how do we keep people in? Uh, look, uh, Richard, I think everybody recognises the challenge we have in retention. Uh, and it's probably the single greatest challenge to force uh, because without our people, we can't operate. Oh, that's, course, the, yeah. that's the bottom line. Um, but... On the other hand, there's no silver bullet here. There's no one-stop shop to, to solve this problem. This has to be a kind of a collective, multiple avenue approach in terms of trying to put enough seeds down to get people to consider and reflect fully on the decisions they're making. I, I, I very much respect people that have given their service, given their time and want to leave the organisation. And... Our feedback, you know, no no two people are leaving for okay. the same reasons. Yeah. Uh, despite what others would say uh, around certain things, yeah. you know, nobody leaves, no two people really leave for the same reasons. Everybody has different draws uh, out of the organisation and, and I respect all of that. My job and the job of the organisation is to try and incentivize people to stay. Okay. And when we say the word incentivize people are nearly automatically associated with finance and okay. money. And that's part of it for sure. But there is so much more uh, that people need to reflect around. And we're trying to create the conditions where people will reflect fully. And, and when, I, when I say those things, I'm talking about the, the total value that life and service life has to offer. Okay. Uh, you know, when you look at the accommodation that we're striving to improve for everybody that wants accommodation, that has accommodation in the organization. When we look at the facilities we provide people with, and I mean, we have invested heavily in, we've two new gyms open this year, for yeah. instance. We will several more opening over the next couple of years. When I want that fit for purpose, that campus level in the joint induction training centre, that will be something that okay. people will be proud of, I hope, yeah. down the road. Um, and when I look at things like when, when people look at their medical, that they have uh, facilities to utilise within the within the service and, uh, and then the, the access to medical facilities outside. And we have to improve that. And we, there's others. And we have to get an equality across that in, in within the forces. And I accept that. And that's one thing we're working on towards as well. When we look at the equipment, you know, and, and getting the best of equipment in terms of personal protection, okay. but in terms of the equipment and, and clothing that people have, we're constantly striving and we'll make that better. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the 
the advances we're trying to make into continuous professional development and making sure that there's a, a facilities for blended learning, getting the work-life balance right for people and offering them all of those valued added pieces. And I just want, if we can get people to step back from all of that and look at all of the different things mm-hmm. and then look at where we can make things better and improve and hopefully take a, to- a, a holistic approach to the uh, service life that people might reflect a little bit differently in, in terms of that, uh, you know, that, that pull that they have. And sometimes it's a very instant okay. decision. Yeah. And I accept that others have taken a very prolonged and protracted period. And I think one common piece around people that leave our organisation, for the majority, not all, I accept, but a majority of, an awful lot of people feel that they wouldn't, they'd like to stay. And it's just finding is how we can okay. help people to stay and so, enable people. And I'm yeah. very conscious of the fact that we, we, we can't do this with our people. And uh, if there was answers to how we could turn this ship around quicker, yeah, I think people would, we'd already have found them. Yeah, yeah, of course. But we're constantly striving to deliver better, to deliver more and to improve conditions and to get people to stand back and just reflect on the added value piece that is a, a life of service. Uh, and it is, a, it is a commitment for sure, but there are many advantages and sometimes we can overlook the advantages uh, while seeking something better. Okay. And I just, I feel that if we can get to that space where we're collectively, and that's everybody in the Defence Forces, uh, in the Department of Defence, and a wider defence organisation as a whole, and I'm talking about the representative associations, I'm talking about those who have an interest in defence, that, you know, there's a leadership piece here right across the board, mm-hmm. just to have that reflective piece balanced. And if we could get to that truth, that point of truth, I think we'd be in a far healthier position. Okay. And it might help turn that boat around quicker. So just if we can, we might move on just to some other uh, important issues that serving members have raised with us. Um, the post-94 sergeant contracts, and they've recently got an extension of two years. What are the steps that can be taken over them next two years so that we're not in the same position discussing uh, extensions in 2024? Um you know, we, re- we we got to a solution, if you like, for the privates and corporals <coughs> uh, over 12 months ago. Okay. And uh, it was less than satisfactory that it took so long. It went to the wire again to get a, to get what is a suboptimal outcome, okay. but at the same time, a, a positive step. And I welcome the positive step and everybody's engagement uh, in it to get to the point where we have a, if you like, a, a, a freeze on it for two more years. Okay. Um, and... That gives us a window of opportunity now to address this. And I'm, and I'm very conscious of the fact that um, we have an independent review group looking at pensions. And I think this is where the, the trigger really lies. And I'm hopeful that in that time frame we can have some sort of a viewpoint and an outcome from that group. Okay. And if so, then it will put us in a stronger position to maybe advance uh, the post-94s. Let me be very clear on, on the post-94 piece, though, and, and the sergeants. You know, in, in this day and age, at 50 years of age, that for people that are fit, that are medically fit, that are adding value at the height of their competency, at the height of their professionalism, mm. and at the height of their contribution to the organisation, I don't want them to leave the organisation. I don't want them to have to leave the organisation. So it's not only in their interests, it's in my interests, and it's in all of our interests yeah. that we achieve a positive outcome to enable these people to serve longer in the organisation. And that's the ultimate goal here. And I think we will, we, we will continue to strive to achieve that outcome. 
So we, we conclude now very soon, sir, but I'd like to just ask you, what, are these, what have been the standout or the highlight moments of your year to date, your first 12 months? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a great question. Sometimes we get caught up in the day to day, you, you forget. And, uh, but it is important, actually. Yeah. It is important to stand back and just reflect. Yeah, and, uh, and I appreciate uh, you asking the question in that sense. It, it has been an, an extraordinary um, period of months, over a year now in, in office. There has been many, many highlights. I think some of my favourite activities is just going out and uh, visiting the MREs. Um, it's being out there chatting to people. I really enjoyed going from, from barracks to barracks, just introducing myself and talking to people and setting out my stall, if you like, and yeah. mm-hmm. having an engagement with everybody. That was really, really, uh, I'm sorry, I can't do more of it. And I, you know, yeah. it's my ambition to do more and more of it. And, and I really enjoy that. Um, but you know, there, there are times when I, I often say to people, you've got to savor a particular moments. Uh, the, the handover of Dublin Castle was, um, a, a wonderful moment, I think, for the state yeah. and to be part of that and to be chief of staff of Ogling and Heron at that point in time, walking the same footsteps as Collins and that was was hugely yeah, yeah. Um, important to me and uh, important to Ogling and Heron and I, I really savoured that moment. But I think the, the real highlight for me was when um, I I had the pleasure and privilege of... Um, of congratulating and participating in the um, acknowledgement of our seven values award winners this year. Mm -hmm. And that was over the last Mm -hmm. uh, month when we recognized those people that had been nominated by their peers and selected by a a group of peers uh, within the organization to be the worthy recipients of the Chief of Staff's Values Awards in 2022. And I had the privilege, along with a um, an invited guest, Jim Gavin, actually, you know, very graciously, yeah, a, veteran, yeah, himself, a yeah. veteran himself, and very graciously um, came along and participated in the ceremony. And that just, for me, you know, was representative of all that is good in our organisation. And the majority of people are good people in our organisation. Sometimes we can get lost in the fog of distress and we can get lost in the fog of of media and other things. Yeah. But sometimes when those days and when you savour them, that probably was a highlight for me this year. And I suppose, sir, then finally, just our, our really our last question, you know, as the head of the organisation, uh, what would you say to any young person out there who's considering a career in the Defence Forces? Join. Okay. We are at a very exciting time. We need energetic, diverse Uh, and enthusiastic people to join our organisation. You will be rewarded with with a sense of belonging. We are embarking on a journey of transformation that's going to be hugely challenging, but create enormous opportunity within our organisation. It's perhaps the single most significant change we will see in a century. And I might, might be overstating that, but I'm not afraid to do it because I'm here I'm now mm-hmm. and I'm speaking from that lens and I know and I feel the heartbeat of the organisation that we are on the cusp of something special and anybody that would like to participate where we will challenge them, we'll create the conditions for them to train, to develop professionally and continue that professional development as long as they wish to stay in our organisation and that I can guarantee them. And I'd love them to join our organization and be part of it. 
and to be more. Sir, thank you so much for coming on. You've, your answers have been frank and you've been very honest with us and, you, and very, very generous with your time. So thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome, Richard. Thank you. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media channels and our website, military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area on military.ie. The Irish Defence Force podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Defence Force podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.